Jerusalem, our feet are standing within your gates. Welcome, blessed congregation of Grace United Reformed Church, uh, to the worship of the Lord our God uh, this Lord's Day morning. Very happy to have you all here with us, and a special welcome to any guests and visitors uh, that you have joined us this Lord's Day morning. We're very happy to have you. And this Sunday morning, that includes me as a guest and visitor, and also my family. Uh, My name is Reverend Jacob London. I'm the pastor of Trinity United Reformed Church, and this Lord's Day morning, your pastor, Reverend Barnes, and I are doing a pulpit swap as well as this evening. And so we're glad to be able to do that to show not only our unity together as brothers in the Lord, but also our unity together as congregations in the Lord. And so we're happy to have him at Trinity, and it's my pleasure to be here with you this morning. The announcements that need to be brought to your attention can be found in your bulletin. We want to give our attention first to silent prayer. So as we enter into the courts of our God, let us bow our heads in prayer and prepare our hearts before him. I'll invite you to stand for God's call to worship this morning. From Psalm 113, the Lord beckons us into His presence. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, where does your help come from? Our help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Lift up your hearts this morning all the way to heaven and receive God's greeting. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ by the operation of His Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's remain standing if we're able. We'll turn in the Psalter hymnal this morning to a setting of Psalm 113. Praise God, ye servants of the Lord, hymn number 224. Hymn number 224 from the Psalter hymnal, Praise God, ye servants of the Lord.
Our God that we worship this morning truly is good, and He shows us His goodness in His law, the ten words that God gave to His people in Israel as they came out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And He also gives us this law to us here in 2023 in Alto, Michigan, in Exodus chapter 20. We'll invite you to turn there. We'll be reading the first 17 verses. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. And therefore the Lord God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the law of God. And then in the New Testament, when Jesus was being confronted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, a young man, a lawyer, came to him and said, Teacher, what is the greatest law? And the Lord Jesus summarizes the whole of the Old Testament by saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the law and the prophets. Well, congregation of God, as we come into the presence of God this morning, we recognize that we um, have sinned in this last week, in this last day. Yes, even in this last hour, we have sinned against God. So let's sing a song of confession. Turning in the Trinity Psalter hymnal to hymn number 456, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. We'll sing stanzas 1, 3, and 5. Stanzas 1, 3, and 5 of hymn number 456, Jesus, what a friend for sinners.
hear the good news this morning. There once was a man, the Lord Jesus, who was invited to dinner with the Pharisees. A sinful woman, having heard that this was the Lord, where the Lord Jesus was, came to that meeting. She began to weep and to wash Jesus' feet with her tears and with her hair. And the Pharisees were aghast. How can this man, Jesus, if he were a prophet, let a sinner touch him? And he said to this woman, beginning in Luke 7, verse 48, he said, you, your sins are forgiven. And they said, who is this even who can forgive sins? And he said to this woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Not the Pharisees who were forgiven. Not the Pharisees who go in peace. But it was to the one who came to him with a broken heart and a broken spirit that the Lord did not despise. Congregation of God, are you coming into His presence this morning with a broken heart? Is there a sin that nags you and that has broken you and has brought you to the feet of Jesus this morning? And even in the presence of all these people, are you willing to weep? Willing to throw yourselves at His feet and ask Him for forgiveness? Jesus says to you, this is the good news, by faith your sins are forgiven. That is what we celebrate this morning. That in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we can be assured that our faith has saved us. We can go in peace. Well, before we turn to the Lord in a time of congregational prayer, two announcements have been brought to my attention. That this week we lay to rest our dear brother, um, and Pastor Barnes was able to officiate that funeral, and so we want to remember his family in prayer. Uh, his dear wife, Linda Smith, who I don't believe is here this morning, but we want to lift her up and the Smith family up in prayer. And that there, are, there is also various congregational needs for those who have been struggling with cancer, so we want to remember them in prayer as well. So I'd invite you this morning to bow your heads with me as we remember these needs before the Lord. Let us pray. Our great God in heaven, how good you are to all who are pure in heart through Christ. And though sometimes life can seem so vain to us, and sin can cause us to despair, and we go through many trials, and we each have hurts and challenges in our lives, but Father, as we come into the house of prayer, you have made all things plain to us. Here in this place, we recognize that your hands hold us and you will guide us to heaven, that you are our portion and you promise us that for endless years, as soon as we close our eyes, that we will enjoy you for eternity and we will praise you forevermore. Father, we pray that no matter where we are, that you would meet us where we are at, that you would meet us in our trial, you would meet us in our despair, and that you would show us the way to heaven through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that we are even able to celebrate today the truth of your word, that precious are those, precious in your sight are those who die in the Lord. We think of our dear brother who was laid to rest this last week, and we thank you for his profession of faith. 
We thank you that he loved you and that even now he is experiencing this inheritance that is promised to all the saints. But nonetheless, for those who are left behind, it is our loss. And so we lift up his dear wife, Linda, unto you. And we ask, Father, that you would minister to her by the power of your Spirit. That she would receive that peace that surpasses all understanding and be comforted in, comforted in the promises of the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you that this is our joy. That it is not only the joy of one, but it is the joy of many. Not only for others, but to me is given eternal life. And I thank you, Lord, for your work in Grace United Reformed Church. And we pray your continued blessing upon this congregation. Be with them, Lord, as we prepare to enter into this education season and as our youth come together to be catechized and our young people to Sunday school to learn those old Bible stories. Father, bless this church. I pray that you would be with those Sunday school teachers and catechism teachers and young people society and girls club and boys club. Wherever, Lord, your people are serving you here, bless them. Teach them again that ancient truth that to give is better to receive. And that through these simple means of teaching children and preaching the gospel and visiting the sick and caring for the orphan and the widow, may your kingdom be established here in Alto. Father, we thank you for your servant, Pastor Barnes, and his work here. I thank you that, Lord, during this last week, he's been able to receive a little bit of rest and to do some visiting and to do some work that needed to be done. And Father, as he is gearing up for this education season, give him the strength that he needs. I pray for the hearts of your people here, Lord, that they would submit themselves to his teaching as they submit themselves to Christ, that they would receive the word from his hand and that they would be blessed by it. Thank you for Pastor Barnes' family as well. Bless and keep them. Give them the strength they need to resist this world, the flesh, and the devil. May they stay strong in their profession of faith as they surround our dear pastor. And may they be a source of encouragement and strength. Father, we also lift up those who are struggling with cancer here in our church, as there are many of them. We ask God your blessing upon them. And though I don't know their names and I don't know the various ailments that they are going through, you promise us that, Lord, you do. You know their every moment. You know their every fear. You know their every joy. And we pray, Lord, that your hand of healing would rest upon them, that you would be with the doctors, give them wisdom so that they can nurse these dear brothers and sisters back to good health. And Father, when it is your appointed time to call them home, we pray that you would continue to work faith and hope in their hearts so that it would not be a time of fear, but a time of rejoicing when we shall close our eyes a final time on earth and awaken in the presence of Christ, our Savior. Father, as we have come this morning as your people to your place of worship, we do pray for the greatest of blessings. That your Spirit would be among us and that you would work in our hearts in such a way to show us the Lord Jesus Christ. That we might see Him in the fullness of His grace and majesty and glory and that our hearts would be satisfied in His countenance. Not because we are worthy, Lord, but because you are good, we ask that you would give us this greatest blessing of seeing 
the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray that the words of our hearts and the meditation of our mouths will be pleasing in your sight. We pray all this in the name of the Lord Jesus, our Savior and King. Amen. Well, before we turn in God's Word this morning, let's lift up our hearts and voices once more. We'll turn in the Psalter hymnal, and we'll sing Psalm 1, that man is blessed who, fearing God from sin, restrains his feet. Psalter hymnal 1, we'll stand to sing, and then we'll turn in God's Word to read. I'd like to invite you this morning to turn with me in God's Word to the book of Romans. And to Romans chapter 6, we'll be reading the first 14 verses. And the whole of that, verses 1 through 14, will be our passage of study this morning. Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. And we'll read God's Word this morning under the heading of, Does Grace Equal Lawlessness? Does grace equal lawlessness from the first 14 verses of Romans 6? Let's give our attention then to the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 1, Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His." 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those, as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. May we receive it this morning with a believing heart. Blessed congregation, that God's grace is license for sin is one of Satan's oldest tactics. This is a dilemma that all Christians will be confronted with in their life. If God's grace is so great, so free, so super abundant, will He not be willing to overlook my sins? In Romans, the Apostle has been teaching us that justification brings peace with God. That justified believers are not represented by Adam, they are represented by Jesus, so that sin no longer governs them. Paul says that Jesus is our head. Paul says that Jesus is our life. He is our grace, and in Him we are made righteous. And if you look at chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says something so profound. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. So great is Paul's emphasis on the freeness of God's grace. It could seem to the Pharisaical among them that he might be minimizing the value of works lessening or loosening the role of holiness in the believer's life. And so Paul, in Romans chapter 6, presents two rhetorical questions. Two questions you're probably familiar with. In Romans 6 verse 1, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's the first question, which we'll look at this morning. And then verse 15 he asks a second rhetorical question. Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Two very similar questions. Two very important questions. He is asking in verse 1, does grace mean we can live however we want? Does grace equal lawlessness. And then this evening we'll look at verse 15. What is the motivation for holiness? 
You see, sometimes when people learn about justification by faith alone, they believe that if I'm called by God, elected by God, to be justified by grace through faith of no work of my own, that means I can live however I want. This was the very same charge that was brought against Martin Luther in the 16th century when he taught those five solas, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, through the Word of God alone, to the glory of God alone, his detractors said of him, you are giving license to sin. They called Luther an antinomian. This is a word that we need to learn as Christians today. Anti means against. Nomos is the Greek word for law. They said, Luther, you are against the law. His opponents said that if justification is wholly of grace in Christ, people can live however they want. And this is a serious charge. Because that's exactly what Paul addresses in Romans 6. That you are saved by faith alone, but you are not saved by a faith that is alone. And brothers and sisters, this isn't just a theoretical discussion for theologians. Satan is continually attacking the church. And every time the Gospel is preached, the demon of antinomianism knocks on the door. If you're justified by works, Satan says, then you're justified by faith. Then your works don't matter. If your works don't contribute to your salvation, Satan tempts you, then don't worry about your sin. But congregation, that's Satan talking. It's the opposite of the Gospel. What we're going to learn today in our time together this morning is that Jesus died to give you a new life from sin. He didn't die to give you a new life for sin. Jesus died to give you a new life from sin, not give you a new life for sin. What I want to show you in three movements for our time together this morning is three things, that we are united in Jesus' death We are united in Jesus' resurrection power, and we are united in Jesus' heavenly life by faith. That's united in Jesus' death, united in Jesus' resurrection power, and united in Jesus' heavenly life. Let's look at that first question in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound. Now, although Paul has not yet visited the Roman congregation, he is writing this letter as he prepares to visit them on his way to Spain. We know that his gospel has come to the Romans. And his critics imagine that Paul's understanding of the gospel promotes sin. He briefly alluded to this in Romans 3 verse 8, if you flip back there, where some say of him, Why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? What Paul Paul means here is that the spirit of antinomianism, the desire to use grace to promote a lawless lifestyle, was already present in the church. And this can be seen in that key word, 
continue? Shall we continue in sin? This is what we call, Paul uses what we call the present tense here, which suggests persistence. The question of verse 1 is not, do believers sin? Of course, the question, the answer to that is yes. The question is not, will God forgive sin? Again, the question, the answer to that question is yes. The question of verse 1 is, does God permit ongoing, persistent, continuous sin so that grace may abound? Now, it should be noted here that I don't think Paul is only dealing with critics of this idea of which he is one, but he's also concerned that there might be some people who are pleased with this idea. Let's face it, folks, this morning. We are sinners. And we believe in a God who is gracious. When Paul said, where sin increased, grace abounds all the more, well, that's just a perfect situation, isn't it? So let us go on sinning. Let's pursue our lusts. Let's pursue our desires. Let's pursue our worldliness. We have to admit that there's some appeal there. There's some draw to these sins. And if God is gracious and willing to forgive, well, that's just great, the sinner might think. In fact, the Apostle Jude says this is something he had to combat in his letter too. In Jude, verse 4, he says there are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. Let's be honest with ourselves. It's a temptation. Paul knows how sinful people think. And he knows that you and I are tempted by the fact that we can have Jesus, we can have a way to heaven, and we can still have our sin. There was once a Russian monk named Rasputin who gained great fame for this teaching. He taught, in summary, the more a person sins, the more grace he will receive. So sin with gusto. This teaching made him so famous he became the personal teacher of the Russian emperor. But Paul takes issue with that kind of teaching. He takes issue with the teaching of antinomianism being against the law, that grace equals lawlessness, because first, I want to show you, he takes issue with it because it takes sin lightly. It takes sin lightly. Look at Paul's response it's vehement. By no means. This is a term frequently used by the Apostle Paul. And it doesn't just express denial. It expresses abhorrence. I think our ESV actually is a little bit weak here. And the King James Version is better. Using the stronger language of God forbid. He is aghast here. He is disturbed that this could be the conclusion somebody would draw from his preaching. And as a preacher myself, I have felt this. 
when you labor in the Word, and maybe I'm not as clear as I should be, or somebody misunderstands, and they come to the exact opposite conclusion of what you're trying to say. Once before I was in the URC, I was in the RCA, Reformed Church of America, Stated Supply. And I was working through the Gospel of Luke, trying to teach that there was one way to heaven through the Lord Jesus Christ. And after church one Sunday, a man came to me and said, Pastor, you're wrong. Jesus said to the rich young ruler, sell everything you have and you will go to heaven. And he said, that means you can go to heaven if you give enough money, if you devote yourself to the social causes, and your heart is in the right place. What do you think my response was to that? By no means! God forbid! That's the complete opposite of what the Bible is telling you. That's the level of shock Paul has. The whole point of Romans is the Gospel, and that is the complete opposite of the Gospel. Jesus died to save us from sin, not to save us for sin. And we cannot take sin lightly. How can we who have died to sin, Paul says, still live in it? In the Greek, the word sin is the main subject here. In Paul's mind, sin has a power. Sin rules. Sin reigns. And in the rest of Romans, all the way into chapter 8, Paul is going to personify sin as a brutal taskmaster who has you and I as its subject and will beat you into submission. Sin doesn't care about your opinion. Sin doesn't care about your health. Sin doesn't care about your church. Sin doesn't care about your family. Sin will destroy you. Sin will destroy your life. Don't take sin lightly. And the problem with taking sin lightly, maybe the greatest problem with taking sin lightly, is that if we take sin lightly, do we not also take the Gospel lightly? Sin costs the Son of God His life. Paul rejects the idea that grace equals lawlessness because it misunderstands Jesus' death. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you know, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Boys and girls, in the ancient world, when somebody was a servant or a slave, oftentimes they would remain in that servitude all their lives. You could be born a slave and stay a slave until you died. And when you are born a slave, the only time, well, most of the time, most of the time, the only chance of freedom, the only time you will be released from your servitude was when you died. Your whole life, you might serve your master. But once that servant died, you were free from your servitude. Think about it this morning. If, you're, if a master came to you, maybe your boss came to you, and you were on the ground dead, and your master says, get up and clean my kitchen, what would the corpse do? Nothing. The master says to you, to a corpse, get up and make me lunch. What would the corpse do? 
Nothing. Paul says, once you die, you are set free from service. And you and I have died by faith in Christ. Paul is saying, we are not called to serve the taskmaster's sin any longer because we are united in Jesus' death. In the same way a dead servant can no longer serve its master, a Christian should no longer live in reckless, unchecked abandon. You are dead to sin. Now last I checked, I have a pulse. And you are all awake, I hope, and breathing. But Paul says, you are dead. Because you are united with Christ in his death. Christian, do you realize that you have died? Your sins and sin nature are in the tomb where Christ was laid. If you have believed upon Christ when He was crucified, your sins and sin nature were crucified with Him. Don't miss this this morning. If you are united with Jesus' death, you are free from the reign, you are free from the victory, you are free from the power of sin. Grace doesn't equal lawlessness. Grace equals union with Jesus' death. Now, to be clear, Paul will reveal in Romans chapter 7, I believe that a Christian still struggles with sin. If you flip there to Romans 7 verse 24, Paul says of himself, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I like the way Sproul puts it. He says, in Christ we are crucified, but the old man still kicks and screams. The point that Paul is making is not that we will be perfect once we follow Christ, but we have been given the the grace to not serve the old man. We do not serve sin in the flesh, but we are given grace to serve the Savior who has loved you and who has given Himself for you. You see, Satan is a twister of the truth. Have another drink, the devil says. God's grace is enough for you. Don't worry about kicking your lust habit. There's grace for that. You don't need to ask forgiveness when you dishonor your parents. Just turn to God instead. That is how Satan tempts the believer. But we must remember that we are dead to those sins. And even when the desire to sin feels so strong, remember that greater is He who is in you than is in the world. Rebuke Satan. Flee from sin. Resist him. And your old master will run from you. Not only are we united in Jesus' death, but Paul goes on to an even greater glory. We are united in Jesus' resurrection power. So not only do we die in Christ, but we're reborn. You're given a new life. I don't know who you are. I don't know where you've been. I don't know what you've done. But in Christ, you are offered a new lease on life. 
And not just a new life here on earth, but you were given a new heavenly life, a new life to enter into the new creation. The first steps of heaven exist here. Raised according to the inner man, given a new existence, becoming a new creation because you are united not only with Jesus' death, but also His resurrection. Notice Paul's focus on union in verses 4 and 5. He says, in order that Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life, for we have been united with Him in a death like His. We shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like this. These verses go together because they are showing us an intense unity with us. Jesus Christ. United, the King James Version captures it well again, can even be translated as planted together. The word is suggestive of close ties like plants growing together that become intertwined so that you can't separate them. I know how strong plants growing together can be. My first job in southern Ontario, where I grew up, was to work on a farm. And my boss had two or three hundred acres of farmland. And I don't know if you have them here in Michigan, but in southern Ontario, we have these vines that grow up your wire fences. And they grow in between the wires. They grow amongst each other so that they become united and they're strong enough to pull the whole fence down. So my job as a young man was I would snip the vines and I would take hold of them, put them over my shoulder and try to pull them off to try to save two, three hundred acres worth of fence. It was hard work. Once a vine gets in between those wires, it's very challenging to pull them out. It was hot work. It was sweaty work. They were strong. Likewise, Paul says, we are interwoven. We are strong because we are united with a Jesus who has overcome death. Paul says, Christian, you are interwoven. You are united with the very same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Now, I don't know if it's not preached enough or it hasn't hit home for us yet. But Christian, Christ's death has broken the power of sin. Do you know that? In Christ, the power of sin, Paul says, has been defeated. Look what Paul says in verses 6 and 7. He talks about the old self and the body of sin. We know that our old self, look at this, was crucified with Him. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would be no longer enslaved to sin, for the one who has sinned, who has died, excuse me, has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. 
don't miss what Paul is saying. The old self, which represents our identity in Adam, and the body of sin, which represents the whole person, look what Paul says, have been crucified. Been brought to nothing in Christ. Allow me to be as clear as I can possibly be this morning. The reign of sin in your life, the brokenness that evil brings to you, the wickedness of this world, Satan's compelling power, Paul says, is undone in Jesus. Do we live like this? Sin no longer controls the believer. For the one who has died has been set free. You are free this morning. You are free. But we come to quite the conundrum, don't we? Because this Christian teaching seems to clash with our Christian experience. The Bible says we are free in Christ. But we don't really feel free when our children tick us off and we lash out in anger. We don't feel free when, the siren, when we hear the siren song of pornography. Fear, selfishness, vanity, worry all seem to have a power to them. So when Paul says, we know that our old self was crucified, do we really know this? How do we reckon our freedom in Jesus to our present bondage that we endure in this life? I think Thomas Boston, the famous Puritan, is right when he says that when we are saved, our complete recovery has begun. That we are justified. And at that moment, God begins to sanctify us. And that the regenerate man or woman is free to live for righteousness. Christian, you are able not to sin in Christ. You are no longer enslaved. You have been set free. This doesn't mean that we are not weak. It doesn't mean that we will not fail. But God has raised you from spiritual death and has given you the grace to resist. No longer do we sin because we have to, or by compulsion, or because Satan is our master. You are free to choose the Lord Jesus. You are free to choose righteousness. Free in Christ. Young man and young woman, you have been free to choose Jesus. You do not have to choose premarital sex. Young housewife, you have been set free to choose righteousness, not anger with your children. 
You are free to choose Jesus, not alcohol. Free to serve Jesus. That's what grace equals. Grace equals union with Jesus' resurrection power. It's worth stating again that Christians still experience that law of sin Paul talks about in Romans 7, verse 23. That there is still power to sin. Satan still has a power in this world. But those whom the Son sets free are free indeed. If you have felt the law of sin, you know how helpless it can make you feel. Sometimes we feel like there's no hope of ever being free. But Paul is teaching us the way to break that power, the way to cancel its reign, is through the grace of Christ. Christian, in your besetting sins, turn and appeal to the grace of God in Christ. There is resurrection power in Him. Third and finally, grace does not equal lawlessness, but grace equals union with Jesus' death, His resurrection power, and notice that we're united with Jesus' life. Finally, if we have died with Christ and risen with Christ, Paul reminds us that we shall also live with Christ. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. And the sense of this sentence is not perhaps if we have died with Christ, but since we have died with Christ, we will also live with Him. A believer needs never fear that they will endure hardship for the cause of Christ and not be rewarded. Death to sin in Christ is logically followed by life in Christ. We know, again, Paul says, because that's what Jesus did. That everything Jesus has and did is now mine. That Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. What this means is that at one point, death really and truly had dominion over Christ. He tasted death For three days, he was held in death's strong bands. But the grave could not contain him. Death could not hold him. And by the power that was his, he rose from the dead. Jesus conquered death. His resurrection breaks the power of death. And the resurrection changed Jesus so that he will never die again. That's why Paul says he lives for God. And so that Jesus declares in the book of Revelation, I am the living one. I was dead. But behold, I am alive forevermore and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Paul says this resurrection life is our present reality. Consider yourselves dead and alive. And so if we are alive, do not let sin reign over us in this life. The reign of sin has been broken. And when sin attempts to make you obey it, 
It needs to be repelled and resisted. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. Now, I know that sometimes fighting sin can feel hopeless. This morning, as you hear pastors say, resist sin, does it discourage you? Does it feel like in your walk of holiness, the only thing we get better at is not repenting, is repenting, not resisting? Sometimes the call to holiness feels like a call to failure. But dear Christian, don't be discouraged. When Paul says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members as instruments of God, he is not saying, just man up. He's not saying, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. No, he's saying, you are made alive. Satan tells you, you can't resist. Satan tells you you must obey your lusts. Satan tells you you must obey obey your desires and you must sin. Paul is saying there's a way out in the life of Jesus. As Christians, we still struggle with sin. But we don't have to. We are no longer in that original state of sin. But you have been raised from the dead. You have been set free from bondage and slavery. And God has promised us that every time we are tempted with temptation, He will provide a way of escape. All we need to do is turn to our Savior in heaven. We need to trust in His death. We need to trust in His resurrection. We need to walk in the newness of life. Now, sinful patterns and behavior don't disappear overnight. We carry a lot of baggage between this life and the next. But present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Run to the God of grace. Open your Bible and read the Word in times of temptation. Fall on your face. Say the Lord's Prayer. Never miss corporate worship. Live your whole lives in the power and the presence of God. That's what Paul is saying here. Under the law, they didn't have this. They felt like the law beat them up. And there was nowhere to turn to. When Paul says you are not under the law, but under grace, he's saying you can turn to Christ. For there is freedom in Him. See, grace doesn't justify our sinfulness. Grace justifies sinners. He ju- grace justifies us by Jesus' death, His life, and His resurrection, and sets us free, not for sin, but sets us free from sin. Amen. Let's pray. Merciful God, we give You thanks for this Word that our Lord Jesus has come for sinners such as us. And He has set us free to live a life to the newness of God, to the newness of His grace, 
and that You have set us free so that we do not have to serve that evil taskmaster, Satan, but You have set us free to serve our King and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. His grace does not equal lawlessness, but equals a new life in Christ. We have died with Him. And You promise that we will also live with Him. So Father, bless us as we endeavor to put to death our sinfulness. Allow us not to listen to the temptations and the lies of Satan, but to run to the God of grace. For we are under the banner of Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. Let's stand to sing a hymn of response. Hymn number 446 from the Trinity Psalter Hymnal. Hymn number 446, Be Thou My Vision. 446.
Would you pray with me for our offering? Father, bless this offering as we give it unto you. We only give what you have first given us. Pray that you would multiply it as you multiplied the fish and the loaves by the seashore, and that you would use it for your glory in the building and the edification of your kingdom here in Alto, Michigan. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. And our offering hymn will be number 230 from the Psalter hymnal. One, four, and five, what shall I render to the Lord? Hymn number 230, one, stanzas one, four, and five. Lift up your hearts this morning and receive God's parting benediction. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.